0: i listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.
1: Now, the United States President Joe Biden has delivered his first major policy address, foreign policy address, vowing to stop US support for the Saudi-led offensive in Yemen. He also warned that the US will no longer be rolling over in the face of Russia's aggressive actions. Separately, the US House of Representatives last night voted to punish a controversial Republican Congresswoman by expelling her from two committees. I've been talking about both issues uh, with our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan. First, here's Brian talking about Joe Biden's first major foreign policy address.
2: Joe Biden travelled to the US State Department yesterday to make this big foreign policy address. And I think that was very intentional. He wanted to go to the seat of diplomacy. He wanted to go to the, the effective Department of Foreign Affairs, the State Department, and talk about the importance of foreign relations and talk about the importance of diplomacy. And before he delivered his big speech, he addressed State Department staff and the diplomats and highlighted the importance of their work and the role that they will play under his administration. A lot of the themes from Joe Biden, we've heard before this idea of rebuilding alliances, rebuilding the bridges that may have been damaged under Donald Trump. And remember, Donald Trump's foreign policy was very America first, America going it alone. And he clashed with traditional allies like the EU and NATO. And he embraced traditional adversaries. Joe Biden said yesterday that the U.S. will no longer be rolling over in the face of Russia's aggressive actions. He said he would be stopping plans to reduce U.S troop numbers in Germany. He called for an end to the war in Yemen and vowed to stop US support for the Saudi-led offensive. He called on Myanmar's military to relinquish power and release the government officials and activists who were detained in this week's coup. And he said that he would work to restore alliances with allies. He said he would take on adversaries, but this would all be done through diplomacy.
3: America is back. America is back. Diplomacy is back at the center of our foreign policy. As I said in my inaugural address, we will repair our alliances and engage with the world once again, not to meet yesterday's challenges, but today's and tomorrow's. American leadership must meet this new moment of advancing authoritarianism, including the growing ambitions of China to rival the United States and the determination of Russia to damage and disrupt our democracy. America and alliances are our greatest asset. And leading with diplomacy means standing shoulder to shoulder with our allies and key partners once again.
1: Joe Biden there setting out his stall. Now separately, Brian, the US House of Representatives last night voted to punish the Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene by removing her from two committees. Who is Marjorie Taylor Greene and what did she do to prompt this punishment?
2: Mary, Marjorie Taylor is a very controversial figure. She is a newly elected congresswoman from Georgia. She rose to prominence as a supporter of the QAnon conspiracy theory. Now, this is this rather bizarre internet-based conspiracy theory that claims Donald Trump was engaged in a battle against a cabal of devil-worshipping child abusers. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene has also embraced other very controversial conspiracy theories. She has claimed that some very high-profile school shootings never actually happened and that they were staged. She has suggested that a plane never hit the Pentagon on 9-11. Another of her conspiracy theories is that wildfires in California were caused by a laser from space She, in the past as well, has liked a Facebook post calling for the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, to get a bullet to the head. She replied to another online post calling for Barack Obama to be hanged with the words, the stage is set. Now, Democrats have been... Outraged by her, they have been very critical of her. And last night, the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives voted to punish her by removing her from two committees. Now, before that vote, Marjorie Taylor Greene addressed the House. She delivered a lengthy speech she stopped short of apologising, but she did express regret for some of her previous comments. She said she no longer believed this QAnon conspiracy theory. She said she now found that the group's posts were full of misinformation and lies, and she said she first embraced these theories because she was upset with the way the US was going. She was upset with the way the country was being run, and she claimed that the media were just as guilty as QAnon for promoting lies. She also walked back comments that she'd made about about school shootings and about 9
4: 11. School shootings are absolutely real. And every child that is lost, those families mourn it. I understand how terrible it is because when I was 16 years old in 11th grade, my school was a gun free school zone, and one of my schoolmates brought guns to school and took our entire school hostage. And that happened right down the hall from my classroom. I also want to tell you 9-11 absolutely happened. I remember that day crying all day long watching it on the news. And it's a tragedy for anyone to say it didn't happen. And so that I definitely want to tell you. I do not believe that it's fake.
1: So a reversal, Brian, on some issues, but Democrats, as you say, outraged. Are her Republican colleagues outraged? Uh, What are they saying now? And what does that tell us uh, about tensions within the Republican Party right now?
2: I think it's fair to say some of her Republican colleagues aren't too happy with all of this, but not that many, Mary. So this vote, it's a Democrat-controlled House of Representatives, so the vote was always going to pass. But just 11 Republicans sided with Democrats last night in that vote to punish Marjorie Taylor Greene. Her own party refused to punish her themselves, and then several senior Republicans criticised Democrats. They said this was a case of the majority party abusing its power, trying to tell the minority party who they can appoint to Committees, and they warned Democrats that they had now set a dangerous precedent that could come back to haunt them the next time Republicans are in charge and control the House. Democrats were accused of hypocrisy and double standards. And one member of the House said, you've promoted your own conspiracy theories when you went on with this Russia hoax, accusing the Trump campaign of colluding with Russia. I think all of this is very problematic for Republicans. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a very controversial conspiracy theorist. We heard her there standing up in the chamber saying, yes, 9-11 did happen. That's not a good place for Republicans to be in right now, but they are sticking with her. Why are they sticking with her? Because she appeals to this extreme Donald Trump supporting wing of the party. And they are terrified of angering that wing of the party. The problem with that for Republicans, however, is that they are alienating and they are putting off the more moderate voters that would have left the Republican Party in recent months and years and won't be in any rush back when they see what's going on right now. And while Republicans chose not to punish Marjorie Taylor Greene last night, they did take a vote the night before to to punish one of their most senior House members, Liz Cheney, her crime voting in favour of Donald Trump's impeachment
1: And that's Brian O'Donovan reporting from
5: Washington. After several weeks of disagreement, special education schools are to reopen from Thursday of next week, with special classes in mainstream schools due to start again on the 22nd of the month. Many parents and advocacy groups have given the news a cautious welcome, in part because previous planned reopenings have had to be shelved. Elaine Healy from Mallow in County Cork is the mother of two children, a nine-year-old girl and a seven-year-old boy. Both have ASD and intellectual disabilities. She spoke to our reporter Joan O'Sullivan last night, shortly after it was announced that special schools like the one her children attend would be reopening.
6: I'm absolutely thrilled. I'd be absolutely delighted if it goes ahead. I'm really, really trying not to get my hopes up in case it doesn't, but it seems to be optimistic and to be honest, it's a lifeline to us now in this in this house if it opens, um, we're desperate for the children to get back to school. It's been really hard having them at home.
7: Why is it so important that your children be able to return to their school?
6: For kids on the spectrum and for a lot of kids with special needs, like the most important thing for them is the routine in their day. And that's been completely taken away from our kids. There's no such thing as remote learning in this house. The kids are just too severe. They don't have the understanding and um, they don't really transfer over that school can be a home as well so this is a home environment and it it, it just actually became too upsetting trying to do any homeschooling with them because the lack of understanding like we can't explain to them that they're not in school but they still have to do the same work we might be their parents but we're not teachers and we're certainly not special education teachers so the fact that everything has been taken away from them it's, it's just been heartbreaking for them, like school is actually both their favourite place to go. So it's it's been devastating. It's had an awful impact on all of us.
7: When you say it's had an awful impact, what do you mean? How has it affected the children and yourselves?
6: It's had a huge impact on both the kids. Like we've had huge problems with regression and everything from uh, eating. My son stopped eating. He had to be put on medication for that. My daughter is now on medication for... Um, OCD and for her anxiety um, they're both stopped sleeping we've had problems with toileting even though they've been toilet training for a few years now Um, it's affected everything with me like my own mental health that I need a break during the day from the kids so that I can breathe and kind of get myself together to deal with what we have to do especially when they're not sleeping at night and when they're not sleeping at night and they're not going to school it's literally 24 hour care for the two of them so it's been very very hard and not being able to see family, not being able to get support from anyone um, all my family is in Cork, as is Brian's, so that's well outside our five k. So we don't don't have any support.
7: How does this compare to previous lockdowns?
6: I think this is the hardest one by far. Having the two days for the schools opening and having them whipped away again, like without warning, it just it broke my heart and it just took away all hope. And I just think this one is really really hard on people.
7: Does it matter to you that when the special schools are reopening on February 11th, they're going to be reopening on a a partial basis? 50% of children will be allowed back on alternate days. Does that matter?
6: No, that doesn't matter to me at all, to be honest. Now I'm delighted that they'll be going back at all. Um, I'd gladly take one or two days if that's what it takes for them to build it up. And I think it might be no harm for a lot of kids that will struggle Um, Like my kids will be delighted to go back to school and they'll slip into that routine again very quickly. But a lot of children on the spectrum will find it hard because staying at home has become their new routine. So that kind of easing into the school might help.
7: Were you surprised that this time around, after what happened previously, that they didn't succeed in keeping special schools opened?
6: I, I was very surprised, especially after the impact of last year. And they saw the impact. Like, I mean, there was so many documentaries to so many parents that went public about how extremely hard it was. I thought that this time, no matter what happened with the country, they'd they'd keep the schools open. Because it's my understanding that a lot of other countries have managed to keep the schools open, especially special schools. So I was prepared for another lockdown as long as the children could go to school. So I was really, really shocked that they... I'm still shocked that they're not in school, like they've completely been abandoned. And I mean, when you take into consideration that there's no such thing as remote learning for our children, it essentially means that they've had no education for the best part of a year now. And when you have kids on the spectrum, like they need all the help they can get, they need all that early intervention, because what you put into them now is what's going to stand to them when they're older. So the fact that they've missed out on almost a whole year, Um, I actually think it's disgraceful that they've left the children with nothing, I really do.
5: And that was Elaine Healy speaking to Joan O'Sullivan about the impact of school closures. For more, we're joined now by the Irish Times Education Editor, Carl O'Brien. Carl, similar plans have come to naught over the past few weeks, so can children and parents be confident that this time the classes will restart?
8: It looks like that, Rachel. Um, The key difference with the two previous failed attempts to reopen special schools was that there was not staff union support for that measure. So crucially on this occasion, the school staff unions now support the reopening. They say they've got assurances over additional safety and support measures like PPE and you know, reduced uh, pupil-teacher ratios in special schools, uh, better contact tracing, um, greater clarity on vaccination. So that seems to be what got the school staff unions over the line on this.
5: Now, not all children with additional needs are included in this plan.
8: Yeah, there will be uh, you know huge relief among many parents and children with special needs, as we've just heard. But there are also many disappointed families. So there are thousands of of children with additional needs in mainstream classes. Now, they are not included in this particular school reopening plan. So if you take children with autism, for example, it's estimated that about two thirds of these children are in mainstream classes, often with the support of an SNA or a resource teacher. They will not be returning to the classroom on foot of this announcement. Their families don't know for sure when they're likely to reopen for sure. And these children were included under the original plans to reopen, which were drawn up last month. So many of those families do feel uh, let down. Now, the government's response is that it says it's working on this. It's going to continue talks with the education partners. And it's also saying that in the meantime, it has a, a special at home support program being planned for the next month or so. And that's where, you know, for care or education needs could be delivered in a family's home in the evenings or weekends, but but certainly notwithstanding that, certainly disappointment uh, among many families of children with additional needs uh, across the country.
5: Which brings us to one of the other big questions. Is it any clearer now when everybody else will be going back to school?
8: Uh, it, we don't have full clarity on that. We know that the government's hope is that it will get primary schools open next, and it's looking like the end of February, or early March, depending on who you talk to around that. So that would seem to be the next priority. Um, The other cohort of students who've been prioritized are exam year students. So they would come perhaps next and then followed by the remainder of post-primary schools, uh, possibly uh, later into March, possibly even getting closer to Easter. So this will be a phased return. Uh, Certainly everyone will not be going back at the same time. And that's what the Taoiseach uh, and other senior ministers have certainly indicated in recent times.
5: Talking of the exam years, the students who opted to sit the Leaving Cert last November, now there weren't a huge amount of them, but some students did go for that option. They're going to get their results today.
8: There will. Um, so about 2,000 candidates who sat the delayed leaving cert uh, last year are going to get their results. And this really has been a leaving cert like no other. You know, you had the first set of exams, which took place in November, December. The first exams held in, at weekends and the evening time. Uh, and the first exams were these candidates were able to pick and choose the highest grade from between their calculated grade and and they're leaving cert Uh, so what we do know now is students will get their results from noon today Uh, we know that of those students getting their results about 40 percent of those uh, did better in their exam compared to their calculated grades so they'll be delighted with that another 28 percent did about the same and 34 percent did worse so so these results are are crucial, obviously, for this cohort of students. And what's clear about it is that many of the students who sat these exams were targeting individual subjects. So most people actually only sat one or two or three subjects. They were targeting a grade to improve it and hopefully secure, for many, a higher preference CAO course. So for any students who improve their grades today and become eligible then for a higher-placed CAO course, they're going to hear from their college in the next week or so. And the really good news for a lot of those students is, even if you've started a new course, you won't be penalised financially if you become eligible for a new course in the coming academic year. So you'll still have access to free fees and Susie Grants and so on.
5: All right, that is good news. What's the latest on this year's Leaving Cert, dare I ask? <laughs> yeah,
8: yeah. Uh, this is certainly at a sensitive stage now. You know, we're getting greater clarity over the options on the table, but I think we're still very much in the dark over precisely what the final decision will be. So yesterday, we, the Cabinet Subcommittee on Education, met Minister for Education, Norma Foley, presented a number of options to to other ministers, and those options are understood to include uh, delaying the written exams until later into the summer, cancelling the exams and awarding calculated grades only to students, as as effectively happened last year, or a hybrid option where students would have options between calculated grades and leaving cert exams. So it's really all up in the mix. Certainly politically, this hybrid option is seen as the preferred outcome, and it's preferred because you know, students, uh, a majority of students support it. Many parents groups want it. The opposition has rode in behind it. So there's a momentum behind that. Uh, the problem or the obstacle here is that teachers uh, would prefer not to assess their own students if they had the option. And their preference is some form of modified exam which would allow for greater choice for candidates. Um, see, teacher unions certainly feel that... Um, a bit scarred from the last experience with calculated grades because they had to place students in rank order which they were particularly sensitive about and again just assessing their students for state exams has been a long-standing concern and they're also worried about how do you manage classes if some students are opting for calculated grades and others are, are going for the exams mm-hmm. so so that big challenge for the government is that if it wants this hybrid model it's going to need the agreement of teachers so there are further talks today with education partners on this and I think we're entering into a crucial period now where the government is need to, going to get teacher support school manager support and, uh, and just greater support around All the right. proposals that it's focusing in on.
5: Carl, thanks indeed for joining us with that. Carl O'Brien there education editor of the Irish Times. <music>
0: Our next story is stays in Australia because hundreds of Australians have had to evacuate their homes due to raging bushfires near the city of Perth. And it's even harder this year, but with Perth in lockdown after that one case of COVID in a hotel quarantine worker. Waterford couple, Kate Doyle and Ian Hayes, have been living in Australia for 10 years now. They bought a house near Perth about 18 months ago. And Kate Doyle, good morning to you. And tell us about the shock you got driving home from work Monday.
4: Hi, Onya. how are you? Um, Yeah, it's been pretty hectic here. So on Monday, I was driving home from work and in the distance, I noticed a massive smoke cloud. Um, It looked pretty close to the house, but we thought it was just like a minimal fire and there wouldn't be much involved. And then within two hours, the smoke was getting bigger and closer to the house and we realised that this was a serious bushfire. Um, It then started increasing even more and by Tuesday morning we had to evacuate and leave our house. Tell us about the evacuation Kate. Yeah, it was pretty hectic. Um, so we've got a lot of animals here at the house. We've got 10 chickens, three cats, three dogs and two little You're kittens. a lucky woman. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my first priority was obviously getting them to safety. Um, so I loaded everybody up in the car and got them my work as a veterinary nurse. So I was able to rush them to my vet practice, which is kind of on the other side of Perth. So it was in the safe zone. So we um, rushed them over there, got them sorted. And then we made our way back to the house to try and prepare the house if a bushfire was going to um, get close. Mm -hmm. So that just involved cleaning out our gutters, making sure that there was no leaves or twigs on the roof that could um, catch fire and just watering down the garden to make sure that nothing could catch fire. So, yeah, it was pretty evacuating
0: crazy. in a, in a lockdown because Perth is in lockdown because of that one yeah. case. What was that like?
4: Yeah, it is um, pretty hard to be honest. Because when we heard that we may have to evacuate, we were all wondering like, what are we going to do? Are we allowed to go and stay at friends' houses? How was it going to work? And um, but then the prime or sorry, the premier came out and said we were allowed to go to friends' houses and just make sure that you use a mask, you social distance. Um, and keep as separate as possible. But we were one of the lucky ones. We had friends here that we could go and stay with. But there's a lot of people here who aren't as lucky as us and have had to go to evacuation centres, which obviously as well have to work with social distancing. So they opened up two, first of all, and now I think there's about eight open because they just couldn't house that many people. So it's been pretty crazy.
0: And you're back in your house now, aren't you yourself indeed, Kate? But the threat of fire is still there?
4: Yeah, the fire um, has moved the opposite direction. So when we had to evacuate, the winds were coming towards our house. So that's why we had to evacuate. The fire was probably about um, seven kilometres away, which is really close in a bushfire. Um, It's now going the whole opposite direction, but it's 130 kilometres in length now. Um, it's been four, this is the fourth day of the fire, so it's pretty much a monster heading in the opposite direction. So it's very, very scary. I think there's been 81 homes lost um, just people's homes, their memories, everything gone. So it's pretty devastating.
0: What's it like being on the far side of the world and in, in the middle of a pandemic and not being able to visit home?
4: Yeah, that's pretty hard to be honest. Um, everybody at home I know is, has been super jealous of us the past 10 months because we've been able to kind of go about life um, as normal. We haven't really been too affected by COVID. Um, but also it's hard on us because we can't get home and we don't know when we are going to be able to get home again, um, especially if anybody was to get sick or pass away, there's no way that we can leave Australia. And even if we did, there's massive waiting lists to go. And then once you're gone, you can come back into Australia. So we're pretty much kind of stuck here until this pandemic ends. So that's kind of hard as well to deal with.
0: It is, that that must feel lonely at times. Um, And and you're in lockdown there in Perth for one case. And we're in lockdown here in Ireland with with over a thousand cases and it's looking like we've many more months to go. It's a bizarre contrast, isn't it?
4: It it really is. I think, like, in Perth we've been lucky because the um, Premier here has been very strict with COVID since the very beginning. So anybody coming into Australia had to go into mandatory 14-day quarantine in hotels and that's been that way since the beginning. So that's why Perth has not been affected by community transmission because it's all been controlled mm-hmm. until last week when this security guard in the hotel caught it, just said over one case we're shutting everything down so we're very thankful for that but and the price we are of that safety
0: the, the price of that safety of course is you can't leave the country or indeed get back in even you know it's yes. not that it's a legal thing it's a practical thing with this quarantine stuff is. isn't that right
4: yes yeah definitely And there is a lot of Australians, I know all over the world still trying to get back, but they're just so strict on letting them back in. So yeah, it's very hard.
0: It's interesting all your experiences in the light of the arguments we're having here about uh, those very issues. Listen, I hope you stay safe. I hope the fire stays away from you. And uh, Kate Doyle, thank you very much indeed for talking to us on Morning Ireland
9: this morning. Now, more than 70 of Ireland's top country music artists have come together to give their fans a much-needed lift by connecting with them via a phone call during lockdown. The idea was the brainchild of singer Trudy Lawler and her songwriter husband Billy Morrissey, who say they've, they're overwhelmed by the response so far. Our Northeast correspondent Sinead Hussey has been speaking to some of those involved.
10: Nathan Carter is one of Ireland's best known country singers traveling all over the world with his music. But these days, because of COVID-19, he's at home in County Fermanagh working on music and recording songs. He's also devoting some of his time to keeping in touch with his fans as part of this new
11: campaign. Hello? Hi, Marie. Hi. Hi, Marie. This is Nathan. Nathan Carter. How are you?
12: <laughs> Nathan
11: Carter? Yeah. Yeah. How's things? <laughs>
12: this must be a bank phone call.
13: <laughs>
10: <laughs> no, it it's couldn't not. <laughs> be Nathan Carter. Marie Clear from Cashel in County Tipperary is a healthcare worker who's been busy throughout the pandemic. She was nominated to receive a call by her family.
0: For someone
14: to contact you like that, and uh, when you're not expecting it, uh, it's really an uplift for the day and for Nathan to get out, go out of his way and ring me. Like, I'm still, I'm shaking really still. Uh, I can't, I'm I like, for Nathan to ring is just, it's just a dream come true really. I still can't believe it really. Um, I'm just
11: over the moon. Look after yourself, okay? You can, can Take care, on. Marie. All the best. Bye now. Bye. Us as entertainers, we don't realise sometimes, I suppose, the, the joy that you can bring just by making a phone call like that. Um, Marie was obviously so happy to speak to someone. And, you know, everybody at the minute is going through tough times, no matter whether you're working or you're not working or you're at home or you're abroad or whatever. But it's, it's tough at the minute. And a little phone call like that, if it picks up someone... And makes them happy for a day or a week or a month, whatever. It's a great thing to do. There was one fella put the phone down one day because he thought it was a prank call. Um, but apart from that, they've all gone really well. And um, you know, some of the older generation that haven't seen anybody or spoken to anyone in months. Um, and this like one lady I rang uh, down in Cork, and she she hadn't had a phone call off anyone in a couple of weeks. So this was her only phone call, and she was she was buzzing. She she was delighted, you know. So it was really nice. And um, I mean, for me as well, I haven't seen a lot of the people that come to our gigs and our shows in over a year. It'll be a year in February since we last done a a show, you know. So um, it's nice to to get in contact with with some of the the big fans, you know.
10: Margot O'Donnell is another one of the musicians who's involved in this campaign. And from her home in Castle Blaney, she's been making calls.
12: We're totally cut off altogether from the people and uh, I know by the calls that I'm making uh, to people that some people are in a very, very bad way and it does lift them, you know, and really we are only giving back some of what they have given to us and it's just to let them know this could, could go on for another little while but it's just to let them know that we're here and we are thinking about them. We want to get back to entertain us and we don't want you to feel sad in the meantime. Just take care.
10: There's over 70 performers involved now and singer Trudy Lawler, who came up with the idea, says she can't believe the response.
14: We came up with the idea when we were actually out walking, talking about the fans and how they are missing the live performances of their favourite Irish country stars. As a result of that, on radio, on my radio show, I asked people would they like to be connected with their favourite Irish country star. And in two minutes, there was over 600 texts. So we realised how much the fans are missing the live entertainment, and we needed to connect both of them. So this whole project is about bringing the fans of Irish country music, connecting them with their favourite Irish star through a phone call. So we're asking people to nominate somebody they believe is deserving of a personal phone call of their favourite Irish country star. We could not believe the success of it. We have received thousands and thousands of messages in the last six days alone. It's a wonderful feel good project. It's so full of positivity, and we're thrilled to be a part of it.
9: Castle Blaney calling our Northeast correspondent Sinead Hussey with that report.
5: Well, as we heard on the news, Myanmar's military has taken control of the country after detaining leader Aung San Suu Kyi and other politicians overnight. A state of emergency has been declared for one year. This comes after tensions between the civilian government and the military following last November's election. Speaking earlier on the BBC World Service, an unnamed activist described what had been happening.
15: Today, that uh, this morning, early morning, or we will we wake up with the news that the military coup in the early morning, and some of our friends were detained um, in the morning. So that's what's happening. Also, the banks are all closed and people are staying inside. The internet connectivity is not there anymore. I'm using with my uh, fiber internet um, base at home, so I can go out use my phone. There is no data at all. So um, this is what's happening right now. And their military um, car tracks are rolling around. You know, roaming around. The whole city, so we don't really know what's happening in Niviro right now because there is no connectivity at all. We've been hearing the coup news, you know, over the last um, last few days, and we don't really think uh, it is happening because we are so worried at the first time. Then after that, the military uh, published a statement that they will not be doing this and they will be uh, abiding the law and order, and etc. And right after they published a statement, you know, they did it this morning, it's like of seven, and we were so devastated to hear that um, the NLD leaders and NLD supporters, some of the NLD supporter and some activists, they are all detained as well. So we don't know how many people are being detained right now.
5: And that was a woman in Myanmar speaking to the BBC a short time ago. Joining us now is Philip Sherwell, Asia correspondent of the Sunday Times. Philip, as you understand it, what's been happening over the past few hours?
9: Yes. Well, what, what, what should have been happening is that MPs should have been meeting in the capital Napidor for the first parliamentary session since the National League for Democracy of Aung San Suu Kyi won a, a landslide victory in general elections in November. What has happened is is that the military had sort of said that those elections were the result of a those results were the result of election fraud, and and they have been insisting that parliament should be postponed. The NLD had refused in, in talks and now the um, military have just marched in. They have um, they have detained Aung San Suu Kyi and a series of NLD leaders in their homes um, and they have uh, said that they're seizing power for a one-year period and then they've just said that their plan is to hold fresh elections and then hand over um, the government to the party that wins. Now, you know myanmar, Burma, as it used to be known, has been here before the the military refused to accept re- results and elections before, and um this is all just uh sort of depressingly reminiscent for many Burmese as they go through this again.
5: listening to that woman in Myanmar, it sounded as though they did have some inkling that something like this might happen.
9: Yes, this is um, last week the um i mean the army have not really been hiding their plans. the commander in chief gave a much, um, widely circulated televised address in which he actually pondered revoking the Constitution. He, he he talked about this in the context of, he said, the NLD refusing to accept there had been electoral fraud, so the army might need to step in. Now, um, this immediately prompted sort of great concerns, and the army seemed to have backed down from it a bit on, on Saturday. But they issued a statement where they said they would act according to law and abide by the constitution they are actually saying that their um, interaction their intervention today is abiding by the constitution because they're saying they have a constitutional right to act if the country is in crisis so they've chosen their words and and um, acted accordingly and I, I would add that the constitution they're referring to is one that the old junta drafted and imposed on the country so they're playing very much by their own rules
5: Aung San Suu Kyi's party has released a statement what does it say?
9: They have released now. You know, they have released a statement on her Facebook page now. Aung San Suu Kyi, as far as we're aware, is incommunicado, so we're not quite clear um, who's put that statement up, and you know, we have to have a bit of wariness about its veracity. But it has urged people not to accept the um, the coup and um, and to and to protest. Now, um, you know, um, this is not going to be. a a popular move her party won the elections in November by an absolutely you know landslide uh, amount um and even if there were sort of some faults with voter lists in some constituencies it the electoral commission in the country has ruled it couldn't have affected the result of the actual um ballot so so her popular is vastly her party is vastly popular and we will see if people take you know take the streets and um and protest that way but they're Interna- up against a very powerful military, sorry. Mm,
5: internationally, what's the reaction been so far?
9: Well, it, um, there's been um, condemnation from the US. There's a, the new Biden administration there, much more focused on human rights issues. Uh, the White House, his new Secretary of State, um, Anthony Blinken, and the Democrats in the Senate um, all issued statements um, condemning this um, last night, US time. Uh, the Interestingly, in the Senate, the leader of the... Foreign Relations Committee there, now now a Democrat, has raised the specter of, of imposing sanctions. The, um, Burma had been under sanctions for many, many years, for decades, um, and that was thought to be one of the main reasons the military had reluctantly handed over a degree of power to a civilian government. So, So expect more condemnation from the West, but now Asian countries and neighbours, especially in Southeast Asia, there's a few countries in this region run by either former military people or one-party dictatorships and they're not likely to intervene and and nor is China who are you know the big power in this region and um, who could be very significant players in in all this.
5: Philip thanks indeed for taking our call this morning.
1: And we're returning to the revised rollout for the delivery of the COVID-19 vaccine following that announcement by the HSE's Dr. Colm Henry that the over-70s will get the Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna vaccines and not the AstraZeneca jab. This will impact up to half a million people in this age group and it's based on advice from the European Medicines Agency and the National Immunisation Advisory Committee. Its chair is Professor Karina Butler. She's Professor of Paediatrics and an Infectious Diseases Specialist at crumlin and temple street children's hospital and professor butler good morning good morning mary and this decision and recommendation on astrazeneca on the astrazeneca vaccine it potentially has significant knock-on impact now on rollout and delivery of the immunization program to this vulnerable over 70s group did you feel you had no choice but to make the recommendation you've made
13: Well, the the first and I I think really the important thing for everyone to remember is that actually overall we're in a very good position and this is a very good news story because we have now a number of different vaccines. And yes, there are slight differences between them, but all of them prevent serious hospitalisation and disease across the age groups as far as we can tell. Now, with the AstraZeneca vaccine, the overall efficacy Was a lower, somewhat lower than with the RNA vaccines. That's the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. But we have every reason to believe it would work as well across different age groups because the immune responses seen in different people looked equally good. But there just wasn't enough data in the older age groups in that when we had another choice. If there was no other choice, you'd be saying absolutely fine. This vaccine is above the bar that any of us thought we would have, uh, that the World Health Organization says, uh, absolutely, it is good vaccine. And in fact, it has other things that we'll come to that may turn out over time to show that it has definite advantages. But far now, on the information we have right now, we are anxious to protect against severe outcomes in those who are most vulnerable. And we know that we have Two vaccines that seem to be a bit better at doing that than the second one and that we have more data on them in the older age groups. Yeah. So that was why it was a preference given to use the AstraZeneca vaccine. They're all safe vaccines and now there's accumulating good safety data on all of them and the AstraZeneca vaccine is coming out with interesting information even just announced this week. And it, it is,
1: uh, and maybe we may I'll have, come back to uh, uh, sorry, Maybe I'll come so back that to that in just a moment, it just to it just may to stay with.
13: on transmission. So these vaccines are all. This is a good news story. Sorry, Mary, I didn't. need that, to That's cut that's question. okay. We'll,
1: we'll come back to that latest data in terms of 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 uh, transmissibility and so on in yeah. relation to AstraZeneca in a moment. But did you consider going as far as as Switzerland and banning its use completely in any age group?
13: Absolutely not. Uh, And I I wouldn't feel that we needed to do that at all. The AstraZeneca vaccine, as I said, it has proven or shown to be very effective at protecting against severe disease and hospitalisation. And even the updated data that has just been published this week seems to confirm that. Uh, Yes, the range of efficacy against any symptomatic disease. Now, that's anything once you've got confirmed COVID. And if you had one other symptom, that was a case within their, their case definition, as for the other vaccines. So in terms of pre- preventing against all of that, it wasn't quite as effective as the Moderna mm. and the Pfizer vaccines. So we need all these vaccines. We Our goal is to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible, because that will bring up the level of protection in the community that may actually stop transmission of this virus from person to person. But you would
1: have been aware in arriving at the the recommendation that you arrived at uh, that this could uh, affect and slow delivery to that most vulnerable over 70s group. Because uh, the plan would have been uh, that the over 70s and the over 85s more immediately would be able to to come to their their GP surgeries for delivery of the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's going to be much more difficult, isn't it, uh, for the delivery of the other two and their storage requirements?
13: And Mary, that was exactly why in the recommendations you will see that the very first thing we say is that all these vaccines can be used across all age groups and that there is a preference to use this uh, where it is timely and practical because we also recognise, and it goes back to your earlier question, a good reason not to take the AstraZeneca out of the mix altogether. There may be some people who, for whatever reason, cannot access our this vaccine. But the HSE has been working very hard and there are means whereby these vaccines can be delivered uh, in the mass vaccination centres, but also at GP practices or other centres. So all of that has been taken into account and there would be no untimely delay in terms of rolling out both these vaccines so that we get most people vaccinated as soon as possible
1: but, but just to be clear are you saying that if there is a delay and we know that that the Pfizer vaccine comes in at the rate at the moment of about 35000 uh, vaccines per week i think or maybe a little more than that uh, are you saying that if we haven't sufficient delivery of Pfizer and Moderna uh, to look after the the over 70s group uh, that you would say uh, fire ahead with the AstraZeneca if it's there to give them uh, some protection
13: if there were going to be significant delays, we would say the best vaccine you can get is the vaccine that is available to you. And we again, we would urge everyone to take the vaccine that is um, available to them at that time, absolutely. But we understand that in having this preference, that in fact, the HSE have worked very hard and there will not be significant delays in terms of uh, providing the vaccines as rec- as recommended.
1: Would you not have concerns that that very statement could create confusion in the minds of uh, of people awaiting the vaccine and confidence in the programme?
13: I would appreciate that actually this is a very challenging time for everybody and there certainly is potential for confusion because I don't think we've ever worked in a scenario like this where we are trying to adapt to the information that's coming out to make the very best decisions that we can for everybody. And the information, even from last week to this week, there is new information coming out that you try and integrate and make those decisions. So I think the message out there is that we have a range of very good vaccines. There are differences between them, but all of them, and this is the bottom line, all of them have been shown to be very effective against protecting against hospitalization and severe disease but there may be marginal benefits in some populations for one over another and they will be placed as best as we can to make sure it that, as well as individual benefit, we get countrywide benefit as quickly as possible. Because okay. I think the goal for everybody is to get and life back to just some just form of normality. Briefly
1: and finally, this preliminary data emerging on the AstraZeneca vaccine and its effectiveness in one dose at the moment that that is being looked at.
13: Well, it, it, even from the investigators, they would say at this stage it is definitely at this stage, based on the evidence we have, that it is a two-dose vaccine. um, In the sense that with that second dose, you get a very significant boosting in the immune response. Now, whether or not for an overall effectiveness basis, you need that second boosting, that remains to be fully determined. So yes, it looks good. But um, at this stage, and they would absolutely say that it is still, it is a two-dose vaccine. People should not at this stage think that they can just have one dose and that will do. We know that after one dose, there is good efficacy in younger people. When I say younger, I mean under 65. That lasts for up to 12 weeks, but we don't know what happens beyond there. And we do know that if you get that second dose, anytime between Four and twelve weeks, you get a very significant boosting in your immune response, which we believe probably correlates with protection, but we don't know that for definite. All right. So it is a situation where we're trying to deal with the evidence that we have and to make the best recommendations. As I said, to protect the individuals as soon as possible, and also to protect the population as a whole.
14: Professor Karina Butler, thank you for your time this morning. Let's talk now to the DUP about their campaign to undermine the Northern Ireland Protocol. Nigel Dodds is Deputy Leader of the Party and joins us now. Mr Dodds, thank you so much for taking our call this morning. Simon Coveney a short while ago said that scrapping the protocol is not going to happen, but he said he does recognise that there are serious issues that need to be resolved around it and he's very willing to talk about that, including talks on extending the grace period. Do you welcome that?
9: Well,
3: um I think there is a recognition across the board now about the damage that has been done as a result of the EU moves um, in referring to the DUP's work to undermine the protocol. Of course, the Prime Minister rightly said last night, British Prime Minister, that it was recent EU moves that have undermined the protocol and provoked concern. And that's clearly the case. You know, having lectured everybody about how important Northern Ireland was at the first opportunity, they were prepared to... Um, Set aside all their previous lectures about Northern Ireland's importance and, and the need to ensure that there was stability across the board and direct a, a border on the island of Ireland. So, look, I think there is a, a real problem uh, which we had, uh, of course, pointed out for some time about upsetting the East-West relationship in the Good Friday uh, Good Friday and St. Andrews agreements arrangements. Um, and, Do you and welcome those, what Simon um, said to today, to though? Fairford. Do
14: you
3: welcome Simon Coveney's remarks? Well, um, I welcome the fact that instead of talking about the rigorous implementation of the protocol that Simon Coveney and others in Northern Ireland were talking about, that they now realise that there's a problem, at least. I think that is welcome. I mean, they were closing their eyes to that. Up to now, we were told that all these problems were teething problems. That wasn't just the Irish government, it was also the British government. I mean, Michael Gove in the House of Commons yesterday I welcome the fact that it was very much a change of tone. He accepted that it weren't just teething problems, but significant difficulties. And the difficulties are that there's real economic and societal issues at stake here. And if the EU is prepared to take action unilaterally uh, and, and still reserves the right to do so, of course, Uh, Then it's incumbent on the UK government to protect the internal, internal market of Northern Ireland with the rest of the United Kingdom and protect our economy.
14: But people might be confused, Nigel Dodds, by your position because your party supported an Irish sea border back in October 2019 when Boris Johnson proposed that Northern Ireland stay in the single market for goods. Your party leader at the time said that was a serious, sensible and stable way forward.
3: Well, that's completely incorrect. Uh, let, let, us, let us be very clear about that because um, that, that is wrong. What the DUP accepted was that that could only happen with the agreement of the Northern Ireland Executive, and that would have to be cross community support, including our support, and the agreement of the Northern Ireland Assembly. So we did never accept it, a border down the Irish Sea uh, or a single market regulation. Uh, Situation for Northern Ireland where where the rest of the United Kingdom wouldn't be in the single market. That is completely wrong, and it's one of the reasons why we oppose Theresa May's backstop. So we've been totally consistent about this, Uh, and, and, uh, you know, you only have to look at the record to see that. And that was in line, of course, with the agreement in December 2017, the joint report, which said that you could only have regulatory difference, single market differences between parts of the United Kingdom with the agreement of the executive and the assembly. That has been jettisoned and set aside, and therefore we never accepted any such border.
14: But of course, this is the Brexit that Boris Johnson and his government wanted. This is the Brexit that you wanted, the hard Brexit out of everything the UK at the same time. This is what Boris Johnson negotiated on behalf of his government. He agreed to it. He didn't have to, but he did.
3: Yes, well, uh, and we opposed it. I mean, we 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 made it clear to Boris Johnson that, of course, the United Kingdom should leave the European Union together as one country. That, that's that's clear and 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 has been throughout. And uh, Boris Johnson and the British government, both Theresa May and Boris Johnson, ultimately settled for something that didn't deliver that. Now, that is the, the cause of the current problems. Mm-hmm. And remember, it is also, of course, a breach of the arrangements that were set in place through the various agreements that have brought about the institutions that we have on in Northern Ireland and the north-south relationships and all the rest of it. But your minister has been overseeing this policy,
14: Mr Dodds. Edwin Poots, as Minister for Agriculture, he has overseen the policy which has created the border posts for the Irish sea border. I mean, that's what he's been doing for the last six months or so. I mean, he hasn't instructed his officials not to cooperate with running the checks, has he?
3: Well... What we have done in Northern Ireland is to try to act in the best interest of Northern Ireland with an international agreement in place and with Westminster government passing legislation to mitigate and minimise the difficulties for farmers, for consumers, for businesses and people in Northern Ireland. That has been our approach and you'll see in the coming days uh, how we will deal with those issues. But the idea that unionists in Northern Ireland, there's not a single unionist in Northern Ireland and be more people more widely. We support the idea that there should be these kinds of checks and restrictions on trade, of all things, on things like chilled meats, on things like pets coming into Northern British soil coming in. We can't have this uh, contaminating the island of Ireland, apparently. Complete nonsense. And, and we have taken steps to try to mitigate that. But what we now see is that the EU isn't prepared to uh, stand by the things that they said they would, that there would never be a hard border in Ireland. They reserved the right to create that. They've undermined the very basis of the protocol. And we're saying to our government, you must now take action. Okay. Strong action, immediate action, to deal with the problems that have now arisen.
14: Thank you very much, Nigel Dodds, Deputy Leader of the DUP. (laughs)
5: It's a month since Britain's new trade agreement with the EU came into effect. In that time, many people buying online from UK-based retailers have found themselves paying more in taxes and charges. Often, these charges have come as a surprise. This morning's Financial Times reports that the British fashion industry has written to Boris Johnson, warning that it's facing decimation over the changes. Our reporter, Kian McCormick, has been looking at what's been happening. Kian, there's a lot more to consider now now before people people click on the purchase button
16: there really is Rachel because the big thing you need to think about first is the origin of what you're buying where it's coming from and the revenue commissioners has clear guidelines on this says buying goods from the UK excluding Northern Ireland may have certain taxes and duties such as VAT customs duty and excise duty now to explain this further here's Anne Gunnell director of tax policy at the Irish tax institute
12: If individuals are buying goods from outside the EU, which now includes the UK, excluding Northern Ireland, they may have to pay duty and tax. And if the customs value, uh, which when I talk about that, I refer to the cost of goods, including you know, transport, insurance, handling charges, if that's less than €22 or €22, then um, a person won't have to pay import VAT or customs duties. Whereas if the value of the goods is more than €22, then they may, they will have to pay VAT. So that could be VAT at 21%. If the intrinsic value of the goods, so what we're talking about is the customs value, excluding those charges I previously mentioned, like transport or insurance, is more than 150 euro, then they may have to pay customs duty. And to work out what your customs duty is, you have to look at what they call the tariff code under the EU. And that's where the EU has set a specific tariff
5: for each particular product. Anne Connell, there, it's pretty complex stuff, And When are people being asked to pay these charges?
16: Yeah, it really is. Now, you should be asked uh, to pay the taxes and charges when you're making that purchase on the online shop or the website. However, if that doesn't happen, delivery service will hit you with those fees. So, for example, on Post will push out a notification post or by text message or email, and they'll highlight those charges that you need to pay. And you need to pay that money to get your delivery. Here's Cyril McGrain, Director of International Mail with OnPost.
17: The item will travel to on post. A charge will, will arise. We will send a message if customs have raised a charge to the customer uh, and options to either go to your local post office, one of our 950 post offices nationwide, uh, or to go online, uh, that a charge has arisen um, and that when that charge is then paid, we will deliver
3: the item for final mile delivery.
16: Well, the delivery service DPD also looks for payment in advance before it releases a parcel. Its CEO, Des Travers, says customers are not happy about this. Has there been any reluctance from customers? Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's about, uh, I would say probably 25% of the uh, customers haven't paid uh, the amount of money and it's been requested of them, and another 25% are waiting for up to three days before they actually pay the the amount of money it's due to be paid in. Is it a case of if you don't pay, you don't receive your parcel? It does. If you don't pay, then the parcel goes back to the sender. Return to sender, essentially. Yes.
5: Finally, Keen, you've been getting some advice for people. What is it?
16: Yeah well there are a couple of tips coming from the European Consumer Centre. Uh, they include shopping on a secure website which you should do always, using a credit card or payment companies like PayPal so transactions can be traced if there's a problem after you make your purchase. Also you need to see if those duties and taxes are being charged at that point of payment uh, because that's really important in terms of you know uh, finding out what you're going to be charged as we've been her- hearing earlier and finding out as well if the website is in the EU are outside it. Uh, already the European Consumer Centre has had 400 complaints this year from consumers. Here's its director, Dr. Cyril Sullivan
17: we have received over 400 complaints in around 50% of those who relate to UK traders. Of those 50%, about 200, uh, approximately 100 of those would relate to Brexit issues. So um, it's, it is it is a an emerging issue for uh, consumers and the consumers in Ireland are trying to get to grips with
16: it. At the point of purchase, you're advising people to be careful in relation to security, use a secure website, but also as well If it's a .ie website, I assume it means that whatever I'm purchasing is coming from Ireland and I won't be hit. With any extra tax, VAT, or shipping?
17: .ie doesn't guarantee that the trader is based here in Ireland. What we um, have seen, and what we have uh, complaints made, is where people have received items from the UK and across Europe and outside of Europe from .ie websites. You can find that you buy the item you think is going to arrive, and then you find yourself being charged extra costs that you weren't expecting. And on top of that, if there's any returns to be done, you then have to pay for returns. And if there's a large item being delivered to you, and you have to incur costs as part of the terms and of the transaction you is, could find yourself being very heavily hit
16: is there a difference between amazon.de and amazon.co.uk
17: well it's strictly speaking there is where you buy through amazon.de it should arrive in with no charges and if you buy from amazon.co.uk it would arrive in with charges so just again do your research make sure that the company that they're supplying from to you um, and they've made it clear up front
5: 400 complaints in one month. Dr. Cyril Sullivan ending that report from Kian McCormick.
0: You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.